Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and back with us again is Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States. And this time we're back in the book of Revelation and looking at chapter four. And I should just say that uh, my co-host, uh, the Reverend Ian Reed Rido, who's normally with me for these uh, podcasts, is indisposed. He's sick. Alistair, hello. Hello. It's good to be back with you. Oh, it's a thrill to have you back with us. Now, how does chapter four of Revelation fit into the book as a whole? Well, chapter four begins a new section, we should say. We've started off with the opening vision of chapter one. In chapters two and three, we've had the letters to the seven churches. And now the major prophecy of the book really opens with um, chapter four being an introduction to the throne room of heaven. What actually happens in chapter four, Alistair? So John sees a vision of a door open in heaven and he's summoned up. And as he goes up, he sees a vision of the divine throne and the worship of the throne room, which he describes for us. And then it's the initiation of the process that really we follow through the rest of the book, the sort of divine worship service, the um, context of the opening of the scroll and the book in the chapters that follow. And it's really off to the races, as it were. <laughs> it is indeed. And what races they are, too. Now, I, some people think that Revelation 4 to 16 is organized as a worship service. Now, I find that idea fascinating. How, how would that work? Well, what we have is a scene around the throne with different participants. And in these opening chapters, and in chapters that follow, we see a number of points of praise, of hymns and shouts of worship, of acts that would be associated with worship, things like the blowing of a trumpet that would be associated with that summons to worship in Israel's um, celebrations. So for those reasons alone, we might think that there is some sort of worship service taking place here. As we go through it, we can also pick up on other details that would suggest that there is a connection between the worship that is happening in the heavens and the events that are playing out upon the earth. And so we have the initiation of a cycle as we go through of the seven seals, the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. And that's very much part of a, an almost heavenly liturgy that can be connected with various feasts, perhaps maybe also with certain aspects of sacrifice. Yes. How do chapters four and five glance backward to the letters to the seven churches? Because we looked at the phenomenal detail of the letters to the seven churches. I wonder how themes of the letters may be picked up in, in these two chapters, four and five. So even in the things that are mentioned in the opening verses, we might think about the voice like the trumpet, the open door, the enthroned figures in white garments wearing crowns, all of those call back to the earlier chapters. So this is, again, we, we're seeing, I think, how interconnected and intertextual the book of Revelation is. And as we're reading through it, this will only, this sense of its intertextuality, I think, will only increase. Yes, it's absolutely phenomenal, isn't it? It just struck me, uh, preparing these interviews, how intricate the whole thing is. Do chapters four and five, are chapters four and five bound together thematically? I think so. I think we can see ways in which 
at the very least, there is some loose parallel between these two chapters, the way in which the one upon the throne is addressed and then the lamb is addressed in the chapter that follows. And so there is, it seems to me, maybe some parallel panel structure to be observed between these two chapters. It's been suggested that panel structure may not be a particularly strong one, but at the very least, it seems that there is some analogy to be drawn. Also, we might think about the connection between the worship of the one who sits upon the throne and then the ways in which the lamb is addressed in the following chapter. So there are ways that these two chapters, I think, can be related. Are they chiastic? Yes, I think there's an argument to be made for that. I haven't looked at the details of a chiastic structure but if I recall, Peter Lightheart has argued for one. Mm. Now, what does John actually, because the details of this throne room are absolutely magnificent, aren't they? What does John actually see in chapter four? So it starts off with the throne and he describes precious stones. He describes the elders that are gathered around it, the sort of fire and the lightning and thunder, all these things that would associate with theophanic visions of the Old Testament. For instance, the things that we encounter at Sinai or in something like the vision of Daniel chapter 7 or Ezekiel chapters 1 and following. These are all aspects of the vision. And then he sees the the cherubim, and he describes the living creatures as they're described here. Later on, we can see that connection with the living creatures of the book of Ezekiel and also the creatures, the beasts of Daniel. Yes, I want to come on and ask you about the connection between the throne chariot and Ezekiel 1 and the enthronement that um, John sees here, but we better get into some of the details of the chapter. What's the open door in heaven? in verse 1 and and what's the significance of the of the open door well the open door we could perhaps see as a sort of opening to the divine temple that um john is placed brought up into this temple and he's invited to participate we've also seen references to the open door in preceding chapters in letters to the churches and so it would seem to be some sort of opening to communion and fellowship and the worship of heaven. What's the significance of the trumpet voice? Because trumpets play a particular role throughout the Old Testament, don't they? Yes, we have trumpets, of course, in the events of Sinai, the great trumpet blast, blast that scares the people. We can think also of the ways that the people were called to craft trumpets, and they were the things that summoned them on their march. And that's described in the book of Numbers. Elsewhere, we have the use of trumpets to start the seventh month in the Feast of Trumpets. And also trumpets will be used for the year of Jubilee. So there is something here that is related to that order of the Old Testament um, sacrificial system, tabernacle system, and the summons to worship, the initiation of some festal period, some declaration of deliverance, we might think about in that context, the trumpet blasts with which the city of Jericho is felled. Um, again, that's an example of a sort of declaration of jubilee, the land being restored to its proper owners. What is the enthronement that John sees there in verse 2? The enthronement or the throne, we might 
have the throne within our uh, Bibles, but it could be read as the enthronement, and it seems almost a personification of the throne, um, the throne as the a symbol of divine authority. We might think back again to the ways that throne visions are described in Daniel chapter 7 and Ezekiel chapter 1. These very elliptical descriptions of divine majesty and authority that is symbolized particularly by this throne surrounded by theophanic pyrotechnic phenomena and we're not really given much of an idea of the figure upon the throne but it's described in a way that um, expresses the awe-inspiring character of the vision and its effect upon those who see it. How I wonder does the enthronement here compare and contrast with what we find in the tabernacle or temple? Because the furniture of the tabernacle and temple is very much a, um, a picture of what we see in this throne vision, isn't it? Yes. And if we see the way that the throne vision later on in Ezekiel in chapters 8 to 10, that description of the glory of the Lord lead, leaving the temple is described. It seems that there is a sort of earthly analog of this throne vision within the temple itself. And so the um, cherubim and etc., the Ark of the Covenant within, these are all representations of the divine throne. And we have then within the Holy of Holies, God's throne room manifested upon earth, which corresponds with this heavenly throne, which Ezekiel sees in this visionary form. And we also have those sorts of descriptions suggested by the way that the construction of the temple and its elements are described in the books of Chronicles. You might think of the common references to the Lord being enthroned above the cherubim. This is something that we find not just in one or two books, but in many different books within Scripture. The Lord's throne is above the cherubim, and the Ark of the Covenant will be part of that throne structure, the sort of footstool for his feet. And then what we're seeing here, I think, is the reality that corresponds to that analogical furniture that represents God's throne. And what's the significance of the precious stones? I mean, we get jasper, carnelian, and emerald. And what's the significance of precious stones in Scripture generally? They represent value and glory. There's something that brings that which might just be functional, stones, to a level of glory. And so there's something beautiful and something that expresses the glory of God. They contain light. We can think about the way that if you hold up a diamond or some precious stone to the light and you see the light play within it, they sort of capture fire within them. They're akin to stars. They're something of burning within them. And so just on that very natural level, in terms of their natural symbolism, they have an affinity with stars. They have an affinity with eyes. They have an affinity with they represent those things that are precious. We see precious stones described in the original creation in the Delium and Onyx stones in some of the surrounding lands of Eden. And also we have precious stones that represent the tribes upon the garments of the high priest. Elsewhere, we have in Ezekiel 28, the mountain of the Lord described the sort of heavenly throne and the heavenly garden, as it were, described as this jeweled mountain. And so I think 
those things prepare us for visions that we find elsewhere, things like the description of the divine throne in chapter 24 of Exodus, which describes the pavement, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And then you might think again of the description in Ezekiel and the way in chapter one that you have um, elements of the vision that include precious stones. Emerald, I think it is, Mm -hmm. in the description there. Likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And then later on, it describes the glory that surrounds. And so these descriptions connect with glory. They connect with images that we find elsewhere associated with the throne of God. And so I think it's a raising up to glory of those things that would otherwise just be functional. Now, what's the significance of the lightning and the thunder and the rainbow? And how do these all relate back to the Old Testament, Alistair? Yes, if we go to the original theophanic vision of Sinai, we see these elements of the thunder and the quake and the ways in which these sounds and these flashes of lightning represent the coming of the storm cloud of the Lord, the sort of shrouding cloud that contains the glorious throne. And so it's as if there's a storm cloud that contains the glory within. You might think also about the tabernacle here, where there's a sort of inglorious covering upon the glory within. And so in the same way, there is these elements of thunder and lightning that might be terrifying, representing a storm, but also there's um, dazzling light and glory that's contained within it. Why are there seven torches of fire before the throne of God? What's the significance of the seven torches of fire, I wonder? So, as usual with Revelation, we need to keep our minds um, alert and recognise where we've heard things before. So, For instance, think about the ways that we've had the description of the seven lampstands. Think about the seven stars in the hand of Christ. And here I think there's something related as a sort of higher reality, the archetypal reality of the seven torches that are before the throne that represent the seven spirits of God. Now, we get 24 elders or 24 heavenly beings. Who or what are the 24 elders? What are they doing? And why are there 24 of them? Do we know? We can speculate. I mean, what else has 24? We might think about the the days, the hours in the day, or we might think about the 24 cycles of the priests. There are other ways to think about the heavenly beings. You mentioned there are 24. There are 28 if we include the living creatures. So we might think about six elders behind every living creature. So there are four sevens. Each um, one of the four of the sevens led by one of the living creatures. And so those are associated with the cardinal directions. And each one of them would have four elders associated that's one way to think about it and how do the 24 heavenly beings relate to the 24 chief priests of the temple or do they well it's certainly a possibility i I mean when we're thinking about the worship of the temple we've already noted the fact that the enthronement of the lord in heaven that is represented in such that's seen in such a vision is represented within the temple 
And so the Ark of the Covenant and other details like that are analogically related to what we see in the heavens. And so it would seem um, very natural to have the cycles of priests corresponding with the elders that we find within the heavens. And so that analogical relationship is not just a mere picture. There is some reality-filled connection. Mm. And so there is a participation in the reality of the heavens, in the worship upon the earth. And that's something we believe within our weekly worship as we gather with the people of God, that there is some correspondence between what we're doing on earth and what's occurring in heaven. So the way that um, the book of Hebrews describes it, for instance, the way that we come to this heavenly Jerusalem and that our worship is connected with that would seem to be a natural way of understanding this. Yes, it strikes me that what we see in God's throne room and Revelation 4 is pretty much what's in our sky or our firmament. I mean, we've got heavenly beings, we've got uh, blue, the blue of the sea, we've got light, we've got clouds. Uh, is our sky a copy of the heavenly throne room of God? Yes, and I think that's one way to understand the living creatures, that the living creatures are sort of lead figures, astronomical symbols, and the eyes that they're covered with are connected with stars. And so what we have is a sort of vision of the heavens with the throne in the center representing the sun and its glory. And so the sun is not God. And yet the sun represents something of the glory of God's throne and that which gives life and light to all. And then around it, we can see all the constellations and the glories of the heavens. Again, it's important to recognize, seeing these things from the earthly perspective, if we're thinking purely in terms of modern astronomy, we're missing, I think, a lot of what's going on here. We need to see it from a, a rooted, earthbound perspective. And from that perspective, we can see the importance of the sun as the central light connected with the glory of the throne in the center, and then we have these living creatures, we have the um, elders and others, and that's like the constellations gathered all around. Now, uh, the, the Crystal Sea, what's the significance of the Crystal Sea, and how does the sea relate to the tabernacle and temple? Yes, uh, interesting question. I'm not entirely sure um, how Another best to mind. understand this. Um, <laughs> it seems to be one of the most natural connections that we could start to draw is with the firmament. And we might also think about the ways that the um, tabernacle and temple, although they're built more or less on the level, are ordered around a logic of ascent. And so you're ascending through these different levels. And so you're ascending up to the throne of God. And so within that structure, the blue veils are representations, I think, of this sea. Um, this passing through the firmament entering into this new realm, which is above the firmament. And so I think that is one way of thinking about what the sea represents. It's the waters above connected with the second day. Mm. We better come on and talk about these uh, cherubim, uh, the, these fascinating creatures, uh, and then how, they, how all this relates to Ezekiel chapter 1, perhaps. Who or what are the four cherubim in verses 6 to 8, and what do they represent? So they're described in a way that associates them with one face. Elsewhere, we have descriptions of multi-faced cherubim. Here they have four creatures, lion, ox, man, and eagle. Those are associated with the 
images that we have within uh, zeal and there they are connections with the um, cardinal directions so it's the directions in which the throne chariot of the lord which they are associated with and bearing the directions in which it moves depend upon which one is facing which direction and so it seems that first of all there is some connection with directions elsewhere we see in daniel images of the beasts that might be associated with these cherubim the cherubim here many people have also seen ways of connecting for instance with the the gospels and the orders that they give are necessarily ones that i'd necessarily agree with but i think as we develop out the logic that is a reasonable connection that can be made the cherubim are the living creatures and they're described both of those ways living creatures and within the book of ezekiel and they are those that bear the throne chariot or they're the chief guardians of the throne um the ones that are positioned around it Yes, and I think if I remember rightly, in Ezekiel 1 and the throne chariot, the, the four living creatures each have the four faces, don't they? So they're, they're rotating beings with eyes all around, in them all around. Fascinating. How do the four cherubim faces sum up the history of God's covenant with Israel? James Jordan has suggested that as we go through Scripture, we can see analogies with the movement from priest to king to prophet to the coming of Christ in the faces of the cherubim. So the ox corresponds with the priest. We can think of that analogy quite clearly in terms of the um, oxen representing the priests within the sacrificial system. And then the lion represents, quite obviously, the king. Think about the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then we have the eagle, the eagle would very naturally have an affinity with the far side of the prophet, the prophet who is in the heavens. We can think of also ways that images of eagles are used within the prophets at various points. And then, of course, the man with the coming of Christ. And so that movement is one that Jordan has suggested corresponds with the movement of covenant history, but also is something that we can see in such places as the Gospels, the movement from Matthew is the priestly gospel connected with the ox. Mark is the kingly gospel. Jesus as the one who acts with authority and power, always doing things straightway. We can see that as the gospel of the lion, the gospel of the eagle with Luke. And Luke is the prophetic gospel. Jesus is the peripatetic prophet moving from place to place. He's the one who brings judgment upon Jerusalem. And then we can also think of the Gospel of John as connected with Christ's incarnation in a very special way. He's the word made flesh. He's the true man. And so that movement of the cherubim is connected with the movement of covenant history and the movement of the Gospels. How does the throne room vision of the cherubim relate back to Isaiah as well? We have words here that recall chapter 6 of Isaiah. And again, it's worth noting the way that many of these visions are associated with prophetic initiation. 
We see that, of course, in the book of Ezekiel. As Ezekiel is appointed for his mission, he sees this throne vision. And Isaiah's vision of the Lord in the temple in chapter 6, the year that King Uzziah died, he sees the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple. And the seraphim of calling out holy 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 is the lord god of hosts it's the same um sort of declaration that we find here and so that sort of a association is a very strong one and in addition to the fact that this seems to be initiating the mission of the prophet john um there would seem to be some close relationship to be drawn between the two Last question, Alistair, but we could talk for ages about Revelation 4. It's just so rich. What sort of worship do we find in heaven in verses 8 to 11 of Revelation 4? It is uh, an expression of glory. There's a song or chant. There's antiphonal uh, expression of um, God's praise. And there are multiple participants. We can think about the ways in which we've got the living creatures they play their part and then we have the 24 elders that they also play their part and so there are multiple voices there's an expression of praise and glory and there's a throne focused worship it's ordered towards the throne to the praise of the one who's seated upon it and so within the chapter here i think we have a sense of what's going on in the heavens and as we go through the book, what's going on in the heavens will seen, be seen to impinge very much upon events as they play out upon the earth. Alistair Roberts, Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States, thank you very much once again. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Alistair, thank you. Great to be back with you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.